0: and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. Devin joins me to discuss all kinds of stuff. We've got some lenses. We've got a wedding ring box thing that's pretty interesting. Devin, what have you been up to, man?
1: Oh, besides building raids and uh, editing wedding videos, oh my gosh. Uh, Mostly just, um, once again, working with uh, that black magic in the studio and learning how to do SDI audio mixing uh, with uh, some Green Valley switcher boards that uh, somebody sent me the wrong power cable and the whole thing went up in smoke. So I've been trying to repair that.
0: (laughs) Wait, wait. So how does the power cable, was it a wall wart or some kind of
1: like laptop battery
0: adapter type thing or what?
1: It basically looked like a MIDI connector. It was an external Mm. giant power brick that was like a 9-pin MIDI connector. And I guess, obviously they're not all standard, but I thought the one that they sent with the switcher would have been the one that goes with it. So I plugged it in and then just smoke emitted from it. Oh, no. Yeah, <laughs> those,
0: those five-pin adapters, a lot of times they have like a 12-volt rail, a 5-volt rail, and even a 24-volt rail. And if they're swapped yeah. around, like you just nope. burned up all your TTL stuff plugged into the main system. That sucks. <laughs> On my end, um, I'm in the midst of uh, rearranging the studio. You can see there's a bunch of stuff missing behind me here. Uh, people came to collect the drums today, so those are out of here. Uh, Also, I just finished up this morning a goof music video for uh, Moturn Media. So if you get a chance, uh, swing over to MoturnMedia.com and check that out. Uh, This is the guy that writes 17,000 songs for Spotify and makes his living by continually generating birthday songs and all kinds of other random stuff and then getting a penny or two a song in order to make things go.
1: (laughs) Have you ever heard (laughs) of him? He's like a i guess he's i i i've heard of him i actually haven't heard of any of his music oh it's no one's actually played it for me i haven't gotten around to it it's good pretty stuff,
0: right? uh yeah it's pretty funny it's like keyboard <laughs> stuff i like it but uh my wife she thinks it's not <laughs> not good so i guess on that note it is time for the news time for the news time for the news First up on the news, we've got the Panasonic 42.5mm F1.7. Uh, ePhotozine.com has managed to get up the first pictures of this thing in action. And it looks like they're giving it some decent reviews. Uh, No one's complaining about it. The lens itself is fairly similar to what the olympus offering already has and i've got that right here this is the 45 millimeter f 18 and it's a pretty tiny deal we've got my beer right here and we've got the lens and you can just see how small this guy is the olympus is a lot smaller than the panasonic but the panasonic does include image stabilization devin do you think it's worth it to spend 20 or 30 more dollars to get the is in this particular focal length
1: uh definitely, especially if you're doing something like uh GH three or G H four with that two X crop, you're talking about, you know, a telephoto lens at that point. You're talking eighty, eighty millimeter, doing portraits and things like that. Uh so it's one of those that it comes in more handy than you think, uh, especially when you're working with these smaller cameras and you don't always have the rigging or the rigging's too cumbersome for you to take somewhere or do something with it. So that's definitely something that I would spend extra for, for this kind of focal length.
0: I wonder if it's really that effective in this small of a lens, the IS, I mean, because, you know, on the bigger Panasonic lenses that have IS built in or OIS as they refer to it, it's mm-hmm. a more substantial device, and it's kind of out further into the middle of the lens, but it looks mm-hmm. from the specs on this guy that it's not much longer than the Olympus offering. So right. it's pretty small and close to
1: the body. Is, is that really going to be that effective? <laughs> You know what, uh, really only without seeing examples, uh, you can only speculate, but as far as I understand a lot of image stabilization and the way it works with gyros and everything else, uh, there's no reason why image stabilization can't be miniaturized. After all, we were talking about uh, Olympus' three-axis sensor stabilizer. You think about the electronics and the motors and the gimbals that are involved in that tiny little apparatus to stabilize that image. I... I don't think that size of the lens is going to make much of a difference in with today with uh, how they choose to stabilize it. I think it's just smaller motors that comes down to how to stabilize it. Yeah, I think on this
0: particular style of, of stabilization, it's just the simple spinning weight system that they use yeah. on like Canon lenses and so on. Um it's interesting. The lens itself is only three ninety nine, and it's just starting to ship. So, if you're in the market for that particular focal length, uh, you can now get also the Olympus forty five millimeter f one8 I believe it's down to like two sixty or two seventy five. So, no mm-hmm. is really for, attractive yeah, under three hundred dollars or is for about four hundred dollars. Either way, I complain a little bit because it's like, man, that's kind of <laughs> expensive. But then when you compare it to your Canon lenses, it's not really expensive. Oh, yeah. So then it it's even like touch Canon. Yeah, I know. I I shouldn't even be nitpicking about that. $399 (laughs) with uh, image stabilization, that's way better than uh, some of Canon's new cinema offerings like those F2.8, uh, what was it, a 24 Mm -hmm. and a, um, was it a 50? What was the other one, those two? Uh, I think STM it was a 50. lenses, yeah. And so whatever. Anyway, moving on down the line. <laughs> um, this is kind of interesting, actually, and I found this while just like cruising the web. And you mentioned wedding videos, and that's kind of an interesting bit. This mm-hmm. is a ring box, and the ring box itself has a built-in camera, and the camera is to capture the reaction of your wife as she opens up (laughs) the box or your future wife actually, and, uh, you know, get that expression or whatever. Now I was, at first I looked at this and I was thinking, well, what do you need this for? But then I was thinking, man, wait a minute. What if you do a wedding video where you do start to finish, like almost a beginning to end, So you get with a a group that's going to get married or a husband who's about Mm -hmm. to propose. You tag along with them the entire time, and you start with something like this. So you get the shot of her reaction. Then you do some timeline as they prepare for the wedding. Then you do the wedding, Mm -hmm. and then afterwards you do the celebration and everything else and maybe a one-year follow-up. And now you've turned what would normally be like a 30-minute wedding video into almost a story about their life that's an hour and a half and maybe you could get more money for that
1: i think i think it's definitely an interesting camera um i mean the quality leaves a lot to be desired uh, very clearly gopro a is way ahead pinhole camera style this is a it's yeah, it's basically hey, it's an HD like pinhole camera that you could probably buy for 100 bucks and these people are saying, "Hey, you could rent our box for 100 bucks. I don't know how long that rental's for, but as well as if you pay them extra money, 200, 1500, whatever, they'll uh, edit the footage for you. But for people who actually do event coverage, I looked at a lot of the footage and while it does seem like a clever sneaky way to grab that without people realizing they're on camera." Uh, I wasn't really impressed with a lot of stuff I saw. There's a few still frames that they grabbed that looked really good. But when I actually watch the videos, most of it is just shaky. It's so low that you don't really see much of their face, especially when the girls are doing that thing where they cover up their, uh, you know, face with their hands and things like that. So so it's just I didn't see a lot of brilliant shots, and it didn't look to me like a a silver bullet that would really get you that shot that you need. But if you're being subtle and maybe you open with this camera and then – your buddy pops out of the bushes with another camera or something like that to do the whole event because you're trying to make it a surprise. Then something like that, I could definitely see this as like, hey, it's kind of worth it. But at the same time, do I almost think, hey, I could build this myself for 100 bucks as well. So um, you know, if you're, if you're a DIYer, it's a clever solution to a problem of trying to sneak a camera in there where you normally can't stick a camera. But considering the low angle and everything else, I didn't see anything that was super flattering and anything that really made the uh, image look amazing and saying, hey, I need this. Now, one of the things I want to kind of show off
0: here, and this is something else and an opportunity for someone to maybe build one themselves. These are little tiny cameras that you can buy on Amazon or on eBay. They're in the $60 to $85 range. They're 1080p, and they're designed to look like key fobs. So I'm scrolling through a few Mm -hmm. of these right here. And they're small enough that you could possibly just build your own ream box like this pretty easily, drill a couple holes, attach this to the inside of the box, and then you know take some of the padding out. So you don't necessarily have to spend the money on... Uh, what was the price on this ream cam? Do you
1: remember? It's, it's $100 for the rental. Right. I don't think that they have an option to purchase. Okay, yeah. So,
0: so $100 to rent or for about uh, $85 to $100, you can literally buy one of these creepy key
1: fob cameras <laughs> and get going that way so but if, if you're a wedding guy and you're doing a few of these then it may be worth it to kind of build your own i mean if it's your own personal wedding and you're only going to use it once then maybe the price is justified that's kind of where they put this price point uh but if you're doing a couple of weddings or people ask you to do engagement and stuff like that i've been asked to do engagements and it's always kind of hard to keep it a secret and then pop out at the right moment and grab that shot. So something like this, I would just consider a backup camera that may grab one or two quick seconds that would uh, actually be good for the video and what you're trying to portray.
0: Now, I've never done any weddings. I'm not really a wedding guy, but. <laughs> stay away. Stay yes, away. <laughs> um, I've, I guess I've done one for free. I was a, a friend of mine who was mm-hmm. getting married and I helped out, but I wasn't in charge of everything. I just kind of. He had a, an interesting idea for a photo booth where people talked into the camera and kind of talked about the husband and wife, and then I cut something together for him. And that turned out okay, but. What is the cycle for the, this uh, w- creating a wedding video? I know you run around with the people in the dressing room and, like, pre-wedding and stuff mm-hmm. like that. What do you do for the engagement portion? Do you really hide
1: in the bushes and, like, jump out and then, like, get the reactions? <laughs> like, is that what you do? Uh, usually for engagements and usually it's separate package than necessarily wedding. It's the kind of thing where the groom would, uh, would pay maybe $200 or something like that to have a pro come out and shoot the engagement. And then it's kind of the situation where it depends, but most of the time the camera shouldn't be seen until the question is popped. And that kind of thing is usually, yeah, you're either from a distance, you're in the crowd or something like that. And then when he gets down on one knees, you start rolling, and she's distracted enough that you kind of make the shot work without her realizing that she's on camera, uh, which is all ideal, because usually, too, a lot of people get very self-conscious when they're on camera, and it's, you know, uh, that affects uh, the video and the look of it, so... It is one of those where you kind of sit around in bushes or you sit around the crowd and you kind of wait for it and you plan out exactly where you're going to be, when and where, and then you wait around to get that shot. Uh, if you're lucky enough that you're doing this for a friend or something like that, occasionally um, you can justify the camera being in there. I um, I was hanging around with a couple that did skydiving. And so therefore oh, nice. we had GoPros, we were doing skydiving. Everything was on GoPro. Everyone got comfortable with the camera because it was there the whole time. And then when he lands and pops the question, I'm already recording because I've been recording the whole time because we've all had cameras on us. So, things like that sometimes you can find very cl- clever ways to get the camera in their way before you need to. So, nice. That's a that's an interesting concept to have the camera on all
0: the time so that people stop being concerned with it. I hadn't really yeah. put that into consideration. What if they say no? Like what if you get paid by the groom <laughs> to film and you're there filming, and you film his disappointment as he's rejected by his not future wife. I mean, has that happened to you? Mm-hmm. Have you ever had
1: one that went sideways on you? I, I've I've only done a couple. I haven't had enough for something like that happen. And I think that the number of people, the number of girls who say no, is probably. Pretty low, especially if somebody's willing to put money in on that uh, situation. But my best guess is, uh, I don't know, you, you wait a week or two or something for some of the disappointment to wear off and then bill him. I don't know. <laughs> but uh, in general, probably, too, I wouldn't, as much as it sucks, I probably wouldn't uh, charge the guy because it's not like he's going to use that video anyways. That's, you know, I basically recorded something that he's never going to want to watch or use. That could so. be
0: a good viral video, I suppose. Yeah, Supposedly, all right, moving on down to some computer hardware here um i've got actually and i'll show you this in just a second, but uh scrolling through these uh musk i believe i believe it's pronounced musk mushkin uh, muskin maybe uh chronos hard drives they're uh four eighty gig, and right now they're a little bit higher than when I purchased. I think they're at one sixty nine but uh they're floating around the one eighty mark and this is a four hundred and eighty gig s s d and this guy is fairly fast, really reasonably priced, and it's kind of the no longer an excuse to not edit off of an SSD anymore or at least have it as your main operating drive. Uh, $150 to $160 when these are on sale, uh, under $200 when they're not, and it's uh, 480 gigs, so you're not limited to the amount of space you would be when 120-gig drives were all the rage in the same price or more. Mm-hmm. So... Have you have you upgraded yet to SSD? Or are you still doing the the RAID thing? I know you've been talking about messing with that. And- yeah.
1: Well, I did recently get a, a fantastic RAID controller, so I've got my mechanical drives over to a RAID. Thanks to you. No but, problem. Uh, <laughs> Recycling. That's 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 the uh, lesson today, but. Uh, the mechanical drives, yeah, rating them will speed them up. I'd probably, you know, get around, say, to two speeds anyways because I'm mirroring them and making sure I've got my backups. But I actually do run SSD on my OS drive, and I have another SSD that's like a 120 that's just for caching as well as doing render outs uh, just so that if I'm doing like a ProRes render or something where there's a lot of I.O., uh, the CPU can work harder because it's not getting hung up on the data stream. I've actually been aggressively looking at SSDs to start – looking at uh, building out the RAID and getting away from mechanical. yeah, uh, Some important things that I've done a little bit of research on SSDs, and a lot of the times, too, you'll see SSDs that are 480 as well as 512. Intel's known for doing that, and Mushkin also does that as well. And that's actually a good thing. I've heard from several manufacturers, and I don't think this is a universal thing, but if you use all of the data on the SSD. Uh, it seems to decrease performance very dramatically to the point where it is really dogging it if you fill completely. And I don't think this is universal, and there's lots of different kinds of architectures to the SSDs and everything else, but that's why I've heard that Intel, Mushkin, and the other ones, they'll do a 480 drive instead of a 512. So sometimes people think they're getting a better deal by doing 512, but if you start actually trying to use all that data up, you end up really hurting the SSD's performance. Well, depending on the... uh Oh, go ahead. Yeah,
0: go ahead. Uh, depending on no, the no. Uh, design or how they build them, um, the chipset, the chips are sized for storage uh, a certain way. So you're always going to get uh, digital increments, so a, a, an eight, increment of 8 or 16 or 32 or whatever mm-hmm. for the drives. But what Mushkin and uh, Intel, as you mentioned, do is this is a 480-gig drive, but it's really got about 512 gigs worth of storage on it. They use that extra space as two things. One is for write cache. So as they're moving stuff around on the drive and organizing it, uh, part of that is used for uh, secondary movement and moving data around. And as you said, if you write all the way to the edge of the limit on the drive, then there's nowhere to move that stuff to. So you're basically copying into RAM or into the buffer memory and back out again. The other thing they use that extra space for is for error wearing on the uh, chips themselves. So as the chips start to wear out, it will actually reach into that data pool and that's kind of absent from the user's Mm -hmm. use and start kind of changing that stuff out so that you can use the data that's kind of in that reserve section as opposed to a bad sector on one of the chips that's on the drive itself.
1: Yes, and so very clever stuff. You obviously a little bit more knowledgeable than I am right now, uh, egg on face, but the uh, other thing to look at too, instead of these SSDs, as you grin over there, uh, (laughs) these other SSDs is... um, uh, I'm also looking at PCI SSDs, the kind that use uh, that M2 oh, slot. Oh yes, or it's called. M2. Uh,
0: you got to be careful with those too. And I might as well throw this out there since I've I've already had to do all this. Um, there's two types of M2. There's the native SATA, and then there is the nor or the other version that you're speaking of. And some of them mm-hmm. are able to do either or and plug into the same spot but some of them will lock in at uh, only SATA, and if your motherboard mm-hmm. does not support the SATA via the M.2 slot on the motherboard, then you're going to have compatibility issues where the drive either won't work or you're gonna run into mm-hmm. some weird things where it just doesn't act the way you suspect it should.
1: Yes, but it's, it makes an interesting upgrade option because there are a few options of putting those M.2s into basically a card that goes in your PCI slot, And that kind of, um, that can sometimes save space. Or if you maybe only have a few SATAs and you don't have, uh, the option to necessarily raid at full speed because the onboard raid controllers crap, like I always run into, Uh, (laughs) um, Then Things like a PCI card that's running M2 cards and stuff like that uh, can give you kind of more expansion options and more ways as well as to it's supposedly faster. Instead of going through the SATA interface, if you really want speed because you're editing raw 4K red footage, uh, you, you basically need that kind of stuff then in order to get the maximum speed out of your rated uh, solid state memory. So fun stuff. I've been kind of looking into
0: it. When is the next standard for SATA coming out? Because we've kind of been stuck at at six for quite some time now. I know they're working on it, but I don't know if there's an announced date or not yet for when
1: that is released. As far as I've seen, uh, I don't even think they have a draft of uh, the next SATA. Uh, SATA 4, I guess is what it would be called. I haven't even heard of a draft of it. And mostly people are just guessing that it's going to be 12 gigabit or 16 gigabit, which would be about double nice. which has kind of been the standard you know it kind of doubles each time that they have it so uh, that, i mean a lot of people are speculating but so far i don't even see a draft and of course there aren't any hardware you can get right now that's doing it everyone right now is looking over at USB-C because that's what everyone wants to talk about
0: all right, moving on down the line here, we've got an announcement from Adobe: uh, the new Camera Raw 8.8 just released for CC and CS6 users. So, if you have a new camera like the Olympus EM5 Mark II or Nikon 550 or D5. 5,500, let me get that right. Um, now you have support for that. Also, I'm looking here at the uh, link, and I believe they have also added a number of lenses. Uh, there's quite a few Voigtlander lenses in that list of uh, supported lenses for correction in the new Adobe Camera 8.8. So now, also, you know what's missing from this is the new Canon 11 to 24 f4. Huh, yeah, I think you're right. It is. I'm not seeing it in there. I was just scrolling through this thinking, oh, yeah, now my some of my Voigtlander lenses. And specifically uh, for micro 4 shooters, the 175 mm-hmm. millimeter f0.95, the 25 millimeter f0.95, and the 425 millimeter f0.95, all of those are great manual focus lenses for micro four-thirds shooters. Uh, it's nice that they've been keeping up with this. Adobe's been basically doing a really good job of releasing and getting new releases out for cameras when i got the 6d i had to wait for i want to say four months before raw was supported in lightroom but the yeah. the olympus uh, em5 mark ii has been out for what about less than a month
1: yeah less than a month
0: yeah that's Which good. is good to
1: see I, when i got my gh3 i swear it must have been five months or something like that till they, it got raw support
0: Oh my gosh! And that painful software that came with uh, Panasonic, what is that like Viewpoint or something? something oh like yeah, that?
1: and that I I uninstalled it as soon as I did realized the mistake I
0: made. Oh, that stuff is horrible. So for those of you who haven't shot on a GH four or GH three, uh, Panasonic like partnered with some weird company to deliver uh, raw photo editing software with the camera. And the software you get is horrendous, hard to use, and doesn't make much sense at all. And then on top There's
1: of no that, flow to it. yep, it's user like user
0: experience is crap. Yep. And then on top of that, you don't get a full version of it. You get like a demo version of it. And then for $299, I think, or $200, you have to buy the upgrade to get everything else and all the regular features. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of a weird deal. Um, I don't really know why Panasonic does that. At least uh, Nikon and Canon offer up something somewhat usable when you get a camera. Uh, DP Professional, which is what comes with Mm Canon cameras, is fairly easy to use and straightforward. And it's usually supporting the camera camera when you get it so at least you can do some stuff with your video or your, your...
1: Well, what is interesting with this adobe update is that it does seem to have support for the DJI inspire One.
0: Oh, is which that is t-
1: interesting to see on there because it's not normally something you think of yeah i'm gonna load up images from you know my quadcopter necessarily into uh lightroom and all that kind of stuff
0: that's a good catch man i didn't even see that in there that's um that's yeah it's interesting and they, they've got it underneath the lens profiles <laughs>
1: Yeah. So apparently, if you take photos with your GGI Inspire, it's going to know how to correct for that lens that's built uh, baked into that camera, because obviously it's not an interchangeable camera. Now, is but that it's interesting raw? to see? It, does it shoot raw or is it just JPEG? I think it shoots raw. I'm not totally sure. I think it shoots raw. I know people have been saying, "Oh, it's such a great camera." Hmm. Um, I haven't seen anything on it that says it shoots raw. And this is just a lens profile, so I don't think it is even addressing the RAW part. If it did, it'd probably use more of an open-source RAW than some kind of proprietary thing. Um, But it's at least saying it's going to try to – it's going to understand the – because it is a wide-angle lens. And already having that profile to know how to adjust for the wide angle and chromatic aberrations uh, is really neat. And I guess it shows that um, probably Adobe's out there listening to what people want. And uh, I'm guessing that there's demand in this area for, hey – all this stuff that that you know that we shoot now with our quadcopters it's just weird considering the quadcopter a camera like that's weird cuz it's the DJI Inspire 1 is not a camera it's a quadcopter that comes with a camera well now, now hold on a second though uh,
0: i think you can actually i'm looking right now and uh, i'll post the screen here it looks like you can actually buy literally just the camera <laughs> without anything oh, I else guess you could, yeah so uh, 4k yep. capturing uh, 12 megapixel stills so this is like a kind of wonky gopro-esque device here I don't know of anybody mm-hmm. that's using this on its own, standing alone, but, uh, well, it does say coming soon up here, so I suppose yeah. it's it's on its way, <laughs> but 550, that could be a, a valid GoPro com- competitor. Look at that. It's got the uh, yeah. uh, Axis arms built into it and everything, so, man, that's the three-axis stabilization. It's a nice package. Yeah, without the, uh, I mean, maybe you don't need the quadcopter. Maybe you can just tie this down to a and stick it-
1: with batteries. Scroll it down, or uh, uh, maybe they don't have it under images, but there is. Um, it actually has proper threadings for popping on other ND filters, which has always been a problem trying to fly with GoPros. I guess they don't have it on B and H, but uh, on the what am I looking at here? Dronefly website, whatever website, DJI's website. You could probably see they actually have screw-on filters which I'm sure they'll charge you a boatload for. Yeah, I'm but looking at the front of it, it right now. Fit. And if you look
0: right there around the edge, that is a screw-on filter. It looks like that's where your micro SD card goes. And if you're correct on that, and it's got a quarter 20 on the bottom, man, then you provide power. And for 550, you have a basically image-stabilized GoPro. That's that's
1: pretty sweet. Yeah, And for some people, you know, uh, as far as I've seen, you know, it doesn't exactly have the bit rate or necessarily the quality of the 4K. uh, But, you know, if your job requires a lot more stabilization and get up and go and stuff like that and mounting to other things, because I think, too, uh, with a camera like that, hey, I could stick it on the side of a car. And it's stabilizing all the footage while it runs. Yeah, that's true. You you give it some power and it goes. So uh, you you get a lot, even though you may not have the pristine quality that the 4K GoPro has been impressing everybody with, uh, you get a lot more features. So in terms of camera moves, I guess, and screw on lenses and whatnot.
0: Yeah, I'm not seeing anything as I scroll through the specs on voltage requirements. Uh, but I'm sure we'll find something, you know, with something like this, people are going to be pretty excited to attach it to like a skateboard or, you know, put it on, like you said, a car or something. (laughs) Oh yeah.
1: Cause you can just stick it anywhere and,
0: uh, start using it. Now, speaking of going anywhere, this next (laughs) one is something that kind of caught me off guard. I wasn't actually expecting. And then all of a sudden it got really uh, popular really fast. Um, this was kind of sort of not debuted exactly, but, uh, Uh, brought up at South by Southwest, and this is Meerkat. It's basically a streaming app for your cell phone. Uh, This is Apple only right now, so iOS users are fine, but uh, Android is out of the question. You click one button... And when you're done, you basically are streaming video via a link that goes to Twitter and to uh, your your graph of Twitter followers. And they can watch it, and then the video goes away once you're done streaming. So the only way to save the video is on the device itself, and it's not mm-hmm. permanent on the Internet. Uh, this is interesting. I know people are really starting to get excited about, well, in fact we're doing it right now. We're streaming live watching mm-hmm. each other talk to each other on camera. Um, <laughs> so, it, it is, I guess, you know this sort of thing is starting to become more popular. We're doing it and now you could go to, I don't know, maybe there's a fire that breaks out in front of your building or maybe mm-hmm. you happen to be like standing on the steps of some courtroom when something crazy is going on and you quickly click your phone, send out a link, and people can start watching what's going on as it's happening, and then you're also saving that to your phone so if it is embarrassing, maybe uh, something you don't want to continue to live on on the mm-hmm. internet, you just never <laughs> repost it, and you're probably going to be a little bit safer
1: it, it's like uh, it's a snapchat with a uh, video streaming kind of a thing because snapchat's more of a temporarily I guess you could say cached uh It's 24 service. hours, isn't it, for uh, Snapchat when
0: you post something? average.
1: I think you can customize it. You can say how long you want it to be out there, but I think the general rule of thumb is 24 hours. Um, and this is really interesting. Like, you're talking about event coverage too, but there's also parts of it too that involve storytelling because uh, the Rocket Jump guys uh, just did um, uh, a Snapper Hero series, which seems weird that they uh, put kind of some of their money into producing a scripted series that would disappear after 24 hours, which is kind of very, you know, normally you just, you you don't think of that as putting together production and then having it live and die instantly. But maybe with, you know, uh, the culture, we went from where everything was kind of had to be live because on demand was, is so complicated to do. And now everything has gone to on demand because that's what the audience has asked for. And maybe now we're starting to bounce back towards the middle where, uh, something about streaming, about experiencing something at the same time that other people are experiencing it, maybe there's something in that that people are really into. And that's why these things like Snapchat and Meerkat, and I'm sure there'll be other companies coming out too, with this kind of live streaming kind of being in the moment, and then that moment's gone, and you move on. Because we are kind of getting into a situation where there's too much content to watch um, and not enough time to watch it all. And so kind of if the content disappears after a while, it then really forces you to watch that content then instead of watching it later. There might be another trick to this, though. Imagine for a moment,
0: if you will, you Mm -hmm. you gain popularity with a short show or series or whatever by posting it on uh, something that's ephemeral where it disappears in 24 hours. Mm -hmm. So your show goes on to Snapchat. Everybody gets excited. You know, maybe um, a half a million people watch it. Right. Well, now it's gone. Now you can't get it for free anymore, but all the people that watched it are telling their friends about it and their friends are like, man... I could really, I could really get into that. I uh, wish I could see it. Where could I find that? And that's when the content creator can roll in and say, "Okay, guys, guess what? <laughs> One month later, now you can buy this that was only on our Snapchat for 1995 plus shipping, or you know, whatever. Or you can subscribe, or you mm-hmm. can do this other thing in order to get that content. So it's almost like um, a peep show, where it's like, here you go. If you didn't see it during that time, yeah. now it's windowed out, and you pay money to get into it." I know on Snapchat right now, there are a ton of paid accounts for um, NBC, CBS, and so on. And they're doing Mm -hmm. news coverage that way. So, I suppose with that sort of thing, news is a, a daily cycle. Oh, do you need it yes. to live longer than that? And that's just another, I'm kind of like brainstorming the ways that I think this might actually work. News is probably the most practical because your news, you don't care about what happened, you know, 10 weeks ago, yesterday. but you do care about yeah. what happened yesterday. So, if that's going up every time, then you are in a good spot. And you're still like bringing, if you're bringing in enough people to watch, then it's probably value add for, uh, advertisers and so on and you can still show ads i suppose in stream Mm -hmm. with that
1: well and and what what you bring up a fascinating point about using it as a temporary advertisement of the content uh because uh for a short second i'll jump on my soapbox here about piracy because uh while i pay for all my stuff and i think that people should Uh, A lot of the figures that they say about piracy taking money is like a lot of things aren't brought into consideration. Like one, most people who pirate uh, usually aren't the types to buy anyway. So it's not really considered a lost sale. And there's many projects, more indie projects and stuff that have made huge successes because their very popular content got out on piracy networks. And then people started talking about it. And for a while, piracy was the easiest way to get media. Now that we've got Netflix, it's like, it's more of a pain to pirate something than it is to just pay the price, and you, it downloads instantly, and finally all that BS of DRM and everything else is out the window. And so you saying this kind of peep show thing makes me kind of think of that whole like, where normally with piracy being like, well I'll watch it first and then I'll buy it later, or something like that. It kind of has that feel to me where you're advertising this and people can watch it for free and be like, hey, you really want to watch it for free? I'll give it to you for free, temporarily and then you want to watch it again with your friends or you want to tell your friends about it they got to pay and that actually sounds like a genius way to start marketing uh, indies and stuff like that
0: that uh, online media and available streaming thing is kind of a sword that cuts both ways though because if you think about it right now you have stuff on there and you're enjoying that stuff and you're watching that stuff but mm-hmm. then tomorrow let's say uh, for example my wife enjoys watching monk that series disappeared from netflix and it disappeared from Netflix mm-hmm. when she was like three quarters of the way through it. So now oh, yeah. it's not there anymore, and unless there's some kind of contract renewal, it's gone completely. And the only way to get it is either buy the DVDs or you know mm-hmm. go the shifty
1: route and download it from somewhere. <laughs> so, well, and I think I think it's on iTunes too. I think a lot of people don't give iTunes credit. I think iTunes has a lot of stuff available for purchase. Uh, I mean, people love the Netflix. Netflix pricing model i think netflix's success speaks for itself uh but yeah stuff rotates in and out of netflix and usually when it's not there though you can usually purchase it um on iTunes, amazon though Prime. man if you think about itunes
0: <laughs> for a second and that's another one i want to like kind of poke at a little mm-hmm. bit is itunes is one of those things where okay so let's say you're watching, I don't know, Game of Thrones or uh, Dexter was one that was recent and you're watching that show and you're paying for the season pass or whatever they call it for iTunes, you're looking mm-hmm. at 45 to $50 for yeah. that season. But if you go buy the DVD, the physical media, you can go buy mm-hmm. that for like 25 or $30 and you can buy it on the used market for 12 to $20. So now- yep. Is the immediacy of getting it from iTunes worth it or should you actually be collecting physical media again because it's the most affordable way to go? And that actually works with records, too, because right now, if you just swing over to Amazon and look for your favorite album and you go there and you'll see, OK, the MP3s are 99 cents or I can buy the whole album digitally for like 1099 dollars. You look below that, and there's a little thing that says used. You click on that, and you can buy the song or the album or whatever for $2 with shipping or $1.25 with free shipping. And now it's cheaper to buy the physical media, scan it at home, and throw the disc in the trash than it is to actually buy Mm -hmm. the digital version. And I don't know if there's a way that we're going to even these things out where the prices are going to sort of level to where it makes sense to go either direction. And it's just more of a, a choice as opposed to the, the conscious needing it now versus getting it in a little bit. But with Amazon Prime and things like that, man, I don't know. It does, does it make sense to spend that much on there or should you be buying your stuff in physical media
1: and saving some money? Well, you're right. It, it's ironic that it costs uh, the companies less money to give us a digital piece of content, uh, but they're charging more for it because of that convenience, um, which, which is, so far, since no one's fighting it on it, um, I think that's the way things are going to be for a while. I was talking with somebody, and I can't take credit for this idea, but um, I think that the landscape is going to change uh, very soon in terms of buying because you're basically buying licenses licensing all these movies and everything else because there was a big court case that is happening or just happened where somebody with thousands of dollars of movies on iTunes died and the kids wanted to get access to those licenses and iTunes says no our contract was with him not with you guys yeah but I think that uh they're they're either winning the case or they've already won the case and so I think potentially in the future, we're going to see uh, possibly a government entity or something step in that says, you need to be able to transfer these licenses in between different providers or providers are gonna start offering that being like, hey, you could buy it through us, but then you could transfer it to your Amazon account or transfer it here or whatever. You can transfer the license once you buy it. And that's gonna help the licenses maintain their value uh, because they'll technically have resale value because you'll be able to transfer licenses. And if that starts happening in the marketplace, Then I don't necessarily see prices going down, but I start to see things where you'd be able to lend licenses out to your friends and we kind of return to what was physical media back in the day, but we're doing it in a digital space that costs less money. And hopefully that makes everybody happy because obviously right now, all the stuff you buy and you license, unlike your big DVD collection, can't go to your kids because there's no way to get it out of iTunes or to give it to another iTunes account. So stuff like that is going to be very interesting as it evolves, I think, over the next couple of years to see what these companies do when probably more than just one family is going to start reacting going, hey, he, I did, he bought all this stuff and now it, it means nothing. It, it can't be put in the trust or anything else. It's just nothing. So uh, it'll be interesting to see where that goes. One thing to think about too, um, and I know death is not
0: the most uh, uh, hot topic right now, but If you're um, a person who has a lot of accounts like this or anything else, uh, you should really think about some kind of death switch. And when I say death switch, there's a company out there that uh, I believe it's like $5 a year or $10 a year. You can designate a bunch of information and you can have it emailed off to whoever you want whenever you die. And it determines your death by A, a response uh, from email, and B, a check in the obituaries for your name. So it sends out an email when your name pops up in an obituary, and then if you don't click on that link in six months, it'll say that you're dead, and it'll send all that information off to the people that you love, care about, or you mm-hmm. know maybe if you hate them, you want to send them that last note that like, <laughs> just really pokes them in the eye. But Get the, last word. the cool thing about this is that if you have these accounts, and I I know you're discussing the legal aspect of it and that might be gray area sharing your password for iTunes or something like that but at least your mm-hmm. your friends, family or whoever you want to share this with can get into your accounts and iTunes is one thing but there's also stuff like your bank account, there's your uh, um, digital media if you have any kind of like, like I have a YouTube channel, if um, maybe my wife wants to start doing sewing videos when I die <laughs> and just take over the whole channel sure. so otherwise that's locked down and you can't get access to it and if you don't have the information for their email or some of this other stuff, you're basically SOL on collecting that stuff. So just something to think about. I know that's kind of weird and going on from weird stuff. Devin, have you (laughs) seen this eyepiece that I posted in the notes here, this
1: wacky lens thing? I've just started looking at it today. It is, I I guess you could call it a, uh, my gosh, a contact lens. That's a telescope it's really bizarre um and it's supposed to be a 2.8 x X, magnification uh, magnification which seems like a lot to be attached straight to your eye it's it's weird to think about because now I'm going to start thinking about, well, what sensor size, the human eye and stuff like that. But <laughs>
0: well, and somehow they even get a, a mirror in this thing. So they're reading the description here. There's a lens and a, a mirror type of interface on this, and it basically has everything that you would find in a set of binoculars in a mm-hmm. contact lens for your eyes. and. That's weird for one because you're wearing them in your eye so they're kind of, you know, it's mm-hmm. a process to take them in and, and and take them out again. So, you're basically once you put these contacts in, you're stuck at to a 2.8x, you know, for mm-hmm. for the duration. What do you need that for? I mean, maybe if
1: could this correct some kind of uh reading issues or um Well, it's it's definitely designed for uh age-related uh muscular uh, degradation wow, losing my words here uh, AMD um, which is weird because we know that by another name as well yeah, uh, when I was but,
0: reading that I thought wait, <laughs> the processing company is making eyepieces now?
1: Uh, but um, supposedly too, these are somehow electronically controlled with glasses use, through the use of magic and uh, <laughs> they'll actually be able to flip between normal view as well as this 2.8x um, zoom on it uh, which obviously would be helpful for those of us who don't necessarily have the same problems. But it's fascinating to think about augmenting the eye and just taking advantage of that the fact that the eye can focus. You don't need focus elements or anything like that. You could just put a, uh, you know, a wider lens or a telephoto lens on the eye, and the eye is just going to compensate. Now, who knows how well that works, walking around with you know, your eyes being augmented because they're so wired to your brain in order to do... Um, uh, what's uh, hand-eye yeah, that hand eye control definitely throw your stuff.
0: perspective imagine trying to like reach for something but because you're so <laughs> used to it being right here now it's way farther away from you or way closer to you than you expect it's kind of like that weird trick where you look into the mirror and you think the car driving next to you is further mm-hmm. back than it really is because the mirror makes it it's appear wide, that way yeah
1: it's really really fascinating i i tell you i don't wear contacts but i'd love to try one out for a day just to see what it's like, especially if you could turn it on and off. uh, That, I don't know. That could either be the coolest thing in the world or it could be really stupid. Um, I wonder how far it
0: sticks out too. Look at that compared to the quarter right there. It it looks like it sticks out quite a ways. Yeah, you're going to have like bulging uh, eyelids when you're wearing this thing, you know? (laughs) Like you look like some kind of weird weird
1: dude. Oh, I bet. I bet you're going to look like something out of a a sci-fi film or something like that with buggy eyes hanging out. But still, for me, I'm just like, this could be really cool. I go, you, you, could, <laughs> you could like see things from a distance. I don't know. This is, I, I mean, maybe I'm weird. Cause I'm a fan of, uh, you know, augmenting robotic parts to me. If it makes me superhuman, uh, even for stupid stuff, like you're just driving down the road and you're like, Oh, I wonder if that's the street I'm looking for. And then you zoom in on it to read the street side and yeah. <laughs> like stupid things like that. I'm kind of but excited about
0: um, HoloLens, actually. That's probably the, the biggest new thing mm-hmm. that's coming out. Um, I know everybody's really excited about virtual reality and stuff, but from a practical standpoint – I would almost rather have the, a holodeck style interface that's just floating around me with you know information and bits and stuff like that tracking what's going mm-hmm. on as opposed to wearing goggles and playing video games i know i'm probably yeah. not <laughs> necessarily on the popular side of that argument but man wouldn't it be great if you're like oh i need to make this and like in the corner the recipe comes up right here and you're looking at mm-hmm. your recipes as you're like mixing stuff or you're watching a tutorial video on how to fix your laptop as the laptop video is playing yeah. like in your four or whatever or you know even I know the uh, Microsoft uh, demonstrated their interaction and working with other people and maybe that's even a thing too or live tutorials and stuff speaking of live tutorials though did you know that Google mm-hmm. is closing down their tutorials service yeah, their help outs yeah. yeah, which
1: is a shame, but they didn't advertise it. I don't think it really a lot of people use it. I got an account for it. I signed up for it, and there just wasn't a whole lot of activity on it. So I can understand them closing it down just to save costs because obviously they need support and uh, people to take the code and keep working on it. But um, it's a shame because I really thought that that was going to be cool and kind of stepping forward and uh, – I don't know, I guess a way of Linda on demand instead of one big service, you could do individual services. But I guess Google got done experimenting in that space and says, all right, well, we learned what we needed to learn. Because remember, it's mostly an information company. They'll do stuff at a loss if it gives them some kind of information that gives them an edge on future projects.
0: Yeah, for those of you not familiar with it, uh, that was basically a way for you to sign up as a professional of something. And then people could come ask for help or advice and you'd basically do what we're doing right now, a hangout with them. They would put money into an account and then it would go to you when you finished and you were being reviewed by them. So you had to do a good job, but then you could show them stuff like hands on camera operation or how to, Mm -hmm. you know, to do something or maybe help them with their math homework or something like that. I know a few people were doing okay at it, doing photo tutorial type stuff for other people, but, uh, I don't know that there's enough of a market or enough people that would be willing to go through A, the hassle of getting a webcam, B, setting up audio Mm -hmm. gear, C, going to some website that they've (laughs) probably never heard of, and then D, Mm -hmm. finding some random stranger and asking them to help them through something for a while. Those are a lot of social mores and other hoops and hurdles to jump through. So probably the reason why it wasn't successful.
1: But at the same time, uh, I mean, tutorials are kind of one thing. And I think like lynda.com and stuff like that definitely has that space. It makes more sense to possibly buy some gear, use a website like lynda or just YouTube in general and fall tutorials. But what I thought Helpouts really worked well at, which there's nothing else that I could find really in that market space, was uh, the fact that it was all free-form Q&A. So it was the matter that, Oh, hey, say you're, you're going to sign up and teach people computers or something like that. Somebody goes, oh, my computer's not booting. And they're using you know their phone or something like that to live chat with you. And you're like, well, let me take a look at it. Hey, have you tried you know, uh, replacing the RAM or clearing the CMOS? And then you show them and tell them exactly how to do that. Um, things like troubleshooting and stuff like that is much easier Uh, When you're doing it across video feeds as opposed to if you're just like on the phone trying to describe things back and forth. So I saw it being really useful for that. And I don't see any other services out there doing it. But obviously, whether it wasn't advertised enough, or Google just thinks there isn't a demand for it, you know, they're closing their doors, which is a little disappointing, but I'm sure something else will come up soon if that's really in demand in the space. I know Amazon
0: kind of had that thing with the uh, fire for a while where you could click a button on the top and they could actually take over the controls and kind of show you stuff and do that sort of tutorial, tutorial. I don't know... If now is the right time for that, I don't think you're wrong. I think that this will be a thing in the future, but I'm guessing maybe five or six years out when people have more of that sort of gear already built into their laptops, their desktops, and so right, on. Yeah. Uh, once everybody's wearing, I don't know, a camera on them or a, a camera on their computer. It's a display. Yep, Google exactly. Glass. As
1: silly as Google Glass is, just like you said before, you were saying, I don't really care so much about video games, but I want a virtual or augmented reality experience, heads up displays make sense. They're super convenient, they're really handy. The problem is that Google came out with something at a time where everyone goes, that's really dorky. But for us, like practical, logical people, we're like, but that's still really handy if you have the programmers, the API, and everyone's supporting it, and people don't make fun of you or get scared of you that you're like recording something. Almost like, it's like, give me Google Glass without a video camera. So people stop thinking that I'm recording them and that could be really cool and really handy when you're driving with directions or you're trying to fix something like you said a recipe doesn't matter have an information that's kind of right by your eye. I'm like that's something that I think is going to get really popular real fast as soon as it jumps over the little this is super geeky and I think that ha- smartwatches is kind of like a step in that direction. Google came out with something really geeky. And now that they come out with smartwatches, it doesn't seem that geeky anymore. Well, especially because Apple's doing it, too. And I guess yeah. they're a trendsetter for cool. But, uh, you know, now it doesn't seem that geeky. And maybe they'll slowly start to bring it back and be like, hey, here's some really cool shades that have a heads up display. So, well, I think they're, they
0: are getting new designers and so on working on it. Um, I can't remember what the mm-hmm. design company is, but the, they're trying to make them fancier. I think they came out too early. Uh, we'll see some more yeah. of that stuff in the future. And it's going to get cool. I'm excited for it. And the other thing I'm excited for is possibly a new A7S. So for those of you not familiar with it, uh, Sony has been pretty aggressive about releasing full-frame cameras over the last couple of years. And last year, we saw several iterations of the A7 series. Uh, This year, we've already started to see the A7 Mark II, which has the 5-axis image stabilization and now there are rumors that uh, they will be releasing up to two more full frame cameras this year. What do you think, Devin? Would you prefer an A7S with five axis image stabilization and maybe a even slightly better sensor? Maybe they could get rid of some of the Jello cam. Or would you prefer something that competes with the Canon 5DS, which is a 50 megapixel sensor on, say, an A7R?
1: You know, you know me. And I, uh, I am not a photographer, even though I play one on TV. <laughs> and I would much rather take uh, image stabilization um, as well as um, that same low light, full frame sensor, uh, things like that way over. Especially if the image stabilization can touch what uh, we saw that Mark II do which isn't perfection, and it's, I don't think it, it ever will be or is meant to be, but if it had that kind of image stabilization on the sensor, I can attach any glass I want to it, and it's going to stabilize that glass so I can go buy a bunch of cheap primes and stuff like that. <laughs> you really start ending up with this workhorse, especially really if it came down in there doing internal 4K like the GH4 does in like an easy-to-work-with Kodak yeah. like an H.264 or something like that. That would be brilliant as well. I would take that in a heartbeat over a GH4. Um, but I'm guessing, I mean, of course, there's lots of rumors floating around. No one knows until NAB, uh, which is coming up here soon. But I'm hoping that it's going to have internal. They probably slapped a new processor in there and said, okay, we can process internal at least H.264. We'll use the onboard encoder. We'll get H.264. For I'm going to the- roll
0: my eyes at that one and say that the camera <laughs> is most likely capable of doing it as it stands and that Sony's just being oh, a bunch yeah. of jerks.
1: Well, who knows? Maybe, maybe they're you know having deals with uh, Ninja or something like that in the back room, being like, oh, we'll we'll do a firmware update after you guys make sales figures. But <laughs> uh, five five-axis image stabilization that would be brilliant. And if it's as good as what Olympus has shown us that an image stabilized sensor can do, uh, this full frame and low light makes it a killer against the GH4, of course. Who knows about what a GH5 will be or anything like that. But uh, for all intensive purposes, it makes everyone stop looking at Canon and even start to veer their eyes away from Panasonic to be like, oh, this could be a contender. So I'm excited to see it because obviously I haven't bought one. The A7S has not sold me yet. So maybe the Mark II will and it'll have everything I need.
0: I honestly love the A7S. It's a great camera. I use it all the time. I don't love it so much as to get rid of all my Canon gear. So I still kept all that. But if you think about it from a photographer standpoint, especially if you're doing like street photography, low light at night, uh, say you're running around some city or something like that, now, with image stabilization added to that, a five-axis stabilizer built onto the sensor itself, you could go from not just being able to see in the dark with the amazing, what is it, I believe, 12-megapixel <laughs> sensor on the A7S. Yeah. But now, you're going to add, like, what, four, maybe five stops of stabilization to the image because of the the uh, uh, five-axis stabilizer? I mean, now you're talking crazy talk. You know, oh, well... Yeah this uh, hundred and two thousand ISO is a little rough you know maybe I should shoot at 50,000 ISO and use the image stabilizer instead that's that's crazy i mean that's awesome that you can do that but it's also crazy Mm -hmm. um i i think sony is going to continue to dominate this whole market as they just keep hitting the mark with new cameras all the time it is really uh it's really interesting that they're coming from behind where their cameras weren't really that popular to now Mm -hmm. like everybody has a7s on their lips that's the that's the camera to have that's the camera you want and it is good. I like it a lot, and I they, would love to they, see these
1: upgrades. They obviously did something impressive, and it's it's that low light that made that I think Sony looked at it and said the most important thing here is low light because that's what people who use our cameras are going to do. Because uh, remember the other lines that Panasonic and Sony has, they've got full size E&G cameras for news work, and uh, it, they they realized that in this prosumer kind of prosumer level. Oh, what a cute dog. <laughs> for those of you uh, watching the video,
0: my dog Gizmo just decided to join me. He is a, <laughs> a papillon who is overly enthusiastic about licking me right now for whatever reason. And I'm trying to scare him away, but
1: uh, he does seem it's to be. not working. Yeah, it's sticking on <laughs> He's my headphones. taking bones. your headphones oh, with man, it. there they go. But... The, they obviously did something right at the A7S. Everyone's looking at them, and they're probably right where they want to be to start releasing a Mark II, even though it seems to come pretty hot after it. Uh, maybe they're following the same line that Panasonic is, where they're really aggressive with new technology, and they're doing short runs of product, and they're uh, not worrying about product support. Because it's not like the GH3 is getting any firmware updates anymore. And I'm sure when the GH5 comes out, the GH4 ain't going to get firmware updates. So I think they're going to look at this aggressive model of releasing cameras one after another. And as long as it means they keep upgrading major features like Panasonic has done, uh, it really will make people look at these two cameras as like, if you're a video guy, these are the two things to look at. And Canon's not going to have a whole lot because Canon goes, hey, we're mostly focused on making money in that prosumer you know, C100, C300 level. Um, they aren't pushing their DSLRs as video cameras. I mean, maybe they'll come out 4K this year, but I doubt they're going to steal the show with that.
0: I'm going to tell you right now, uh, the rumors for the Canon releases for NAB are A, a fixed lens uh, C100 style 4K shooter, and Mm. B, a C300 Mark II that's capable of shooting 4K internally. Those, I believe, Mm. are going to be the two that you see coming out at either NAB or towards the end of the year. Um, I was hoping that we would see a 5D Mark IV with uh, 4K capabilities, but... From what I understand, talking to Mitch and some of the other guys, we're probably not going to see a 4K 5D Mark IV until sometime in 2016. So Mm. that's a ways off, which is pretty disappointing. On the GH4 side, though, and I kind of want to talk about this a little bit, the price has been dropping uh, pretty substantially. The GH4 is down to $1,200 on eBay and uh, sometimes even on Amazon, but... There's a lot of talk of a brand-new firmware release for the GH4 this year as opposed to a new camera from Panasonic – and Mm -hmm. they're talking about a bunch of features being added to the gh4 and i've been trying to like pin down what those features are but every time (laughs) i talk to somebody they're very nebulous about it oh it's going to get uh you know some kind of new kodak or it's going to get uh some kind of in-camera processing or maybe they're going to be able to up the frame rates or the frame rate on 4k footage to 60 uh 60 frames per second but I don't know, honestly, and they say you – the people I've talked to say I'm going to be really excited when it comes out, but <laughs> that's all they'll tell me, so I don't
1: actually know. And Devin, have you heard any rumors on the GH4 firmware? Uh, I've just heard speculation, but I think it stands uh, to credit for something, the fact that we know that the camera's capable of 200 uh, megabits per second in its recording. And the fact is, is that what needs it the most is the 4k and that it can't do that, which seems like a limitation of, uh, whatever's ingesting the IO for the, uh, hardware. But I could see it becoming a thing when you're looking at that, uh, what's it? 96 frames a second or something like that. It's, uh, or 90, um, that guy is, if I recall right, is also 100 megabits, and I would love to see that jump up to 200 because that's what really needs it the most is um, trying to do that high-speed stuff. I don't know what else they'd come out with other than the fact that you could maybe have image stabilization. Maybe
0: internally. they'll just finally fix the uh, screen displays so that they don't disappear on you. <laughs> I mean, that, that would, would be, be a great thing. In fact, um, well, if you look over here... in that direction. I'm going to show you yeah. real quick. I was just shooting on the GH4... Uh, it's right there somewhere somewhere. Yeah. Okay. So there's the GH4 right there. And I Mm -hmm. had a monitor. We were doing some puppeteering stuff and, um, I had to actually, uh, touch the screen continuously because we were trying to make sure that audio synced correctly. The, The issue is when you're doing, um, that sort of thing, the, uh, puppets themselves like you want the mouse to move on time and then when you're cutting it this was in in this case it was for a music video you want everything to start in sync so you can take the audio and move it around well the audio meters were disappearing and i i wasn't sure if the battery was dead on the mic i had plugged into it and i had to keep like tapping Mm -hmm. the screen to make sure that the speakers were playing loud enough for it to catch everything and it was just kind of a pain in the butt so
1: i yeah it seems like the biggest underside in the whole uh product because even when they went to uh the gh4 they went oh you want like all of our information to be off of the video feed so you can see a more clean video feed so they push you know when you uh you go to like the cinematic mode and everything else it pushes all the iso settings and everything else onto the black areas and tries to get it mostly off the frame and stuff like that and then it still just doesn't keep the damn screen on Yep, it's like really and so you got to plug in an external monitor, and then you find out the hard way, like I did, that when the external monitor runs out of battery or turns off, it actually stops recording because of the way that the internal HDMI structure is. So what
0: that actually happens? I guess I, I pay attention to my it my GH three. So. Huh. I don't know
1: if they fix it the GH four, but definitely the GH three. If you plug in something through the HDMI, you hit record, and then you unplug the HDMI, it'll stop recording.
0: Well, what I actually ended up doing um, when I turned the camera around, I kind of messed up the way everything looks now, but uh, I had the Aperture VS3, I believe, attached to the GH4, and that mm-hmm. way, that one has built-in HDMI audio levels, so it, right. it captures whatever's coming in via the HDMI port and gives you levels, and because of that, they're almost as accurate as the on-camera levels, so when I run into this issue where the freaking audio meter shut <laughs> off and I can't see it, I actually end up relying on the VS3 because it has that, and and uh, for those of you looking for a monitor, the VS3 and the VS2 are pretty decent. Uh, I believe they're about 720p-esque uh, resolution monitors for the three to $200 range. I like mine a lot, especially the audio level meter thing. That's pretty handy to have. So um, sorry to derail that. But yeah, man, that is dumb. And there's a few other things I would love to see Panasonic do to the menu system to just make it more intuitive. Because right that's, now... That's a
1: firmware problem. Like, leaving the screen on, everyone knows that's a firmware problem. So that should be something that would be like, hey, guys, let's go ahead and make this an option in the menu. This should be a relatively quick fix. We aren't asking for you to change anything with bit rates or codecs or frame rates. Just leave the monitor on would be great or an option for it. Um, Something that I've done is there's a Kickstarter for what's basically an HDMI plug that doesn't have a monitor hooked up to it. But it's just a plug that pretends to be a monitor. Um, called a uh, Headless Ghost or something like that. I've used that in a few cameras in order to uh, sometimes keep the screen awake. I think the last one, I, I think it worked with the GH2. I don't think I've tried ah. it with the GH3. Uh, but it's like hooking up an external monitor without carrying around an external monitor if you're trying to keep the, uh, the screen awake. Um, but yeah, it, this is, should be a firmware thing. It should be easy to do. So yeah, that would definitely wow me if uh, <laughs> Panasonic was like, hey... We we've got controls over uh you know keeping your meters on screen because, uh geez that would be nice there I don't but I don't know what else they do except image stabilization because they do have room around that sensor but that would be really complicated yeah if they don't you're have doing it in camera
0: it. you would really have yeah. to be doing some really amazing uh, warp stabilization off of the sensor's image and moving it around because you're right the sensor is bigger than 4K um, so mm-hmm. they could you know, do some digital trickery, but that's a lot of processing. I mean, even with my Titan upstairs, (laughs) when I'm doing warp stabilization, you're talking like a 15 (laughs) minute walk away and come back process. It's not like (laughs) super fast. Analyze
1: it and work on all of it. Yeah, for sure.
0: And to do that on the fly, man, you would really need some compute power to, to really take that,
1: take that down. Well, and I don't even know if the camera's got accelerometers. I know it's got digital levels, but it would need accelerometer data in order to interpolate what's going on yeah. and how to react to it. So I have no idea what they got planned. It's interesting, though, that everyone keeps telling you that you'll love it. <laughs> I guess it's marketing for you.
0: <laughs> yeah. The uh, So even though I'm complaining about the GH4, I use it all the time. I like it a lot. It's a great camera. It does a good job. Um, I'm a little disappointed with the color science inside the GH4. And I, I know this mm-hmm. isn't really a review time, but uh, the gh4's color is usually a little bit weirder than it is on the canon 5d mark III or the mm-hmm. a7s and i'm not sure you know i set the the k value to the proper setting for the lighting i'm using i use a light meter i check everything out and it's still a little bit washed out um i've messed around with the settings a little bit and i end up always adding just a bit of contrast to it in post and a little bit of d sharpening mm-hmm. to really get it to where i want to be so I don't know if that's just me. Maybe I'm being really picky, but otherwise great camera. And now (laughs) $1,200. Yeah. Buy one, (laughs) buy two, buy four. I don't know.
1: It's, it's an amazing deal. It's an amazing deal for internal 4k recording and everything that you get with that. Um, It's definitely something to consider if you're on the fence between that and like uh, the Sony A7S.
0: So we've rolled through pretty much all of the news this week. It's been a pretty slow news week. Uh, Not a whole lot of cool stuff coming out yet, but NAB's around the corner, so I expect to be flooded with all kinds (laughs) of craziness. Now, Devin, it's on to the pick of the week. What do you got, man? My pick of the
1: week... I was just thinking, okay, now I remember again. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It's a YouTube channel uh, called Every Frame of Painting, and I don't know if anyone has mentioned this before on the show or anything like that, but uh, this YouTube channel, Every Frame of Painting, uh, if you're into cinematography, a bit about storytelling, editing, and things like that, more of the narrative side than necessarily documentary or um, uh, ENG kind of stuff, uh, just brilliant. Uh, This guy really understands film and he goes through and steps through different directors. He steps through different methods of how they work uh, and interesting thoughts of who wins what shot. He even goes into writing who wins a scene and how do you explain that uh, visually instead of just through dialogue and, you know, uh, just uh, all about telling your story visually. And I think that uh, they're short videos, but they're fantastic videos. I watch them again and again uh, because it just does a great way of kind of refreshing uh, you know, it, it's, it's basically – it's better than, like, film schools that I've been at and I've visited and stuff like that. The kind of understanding and the way he explains it, uh, he's just a fantastic teacher.
0: Yeah, I just actually watched the uh, Kawasa, um – I'm not saying that right. You know, the uh, Japanese director that did a lot of yes. – uh, Ka- is it Kawasawa? Kawasawa, thank Kurosawa. you. Yep. Um, I watched that one, and it was really good showing the motion and how they were using rain behind it. And the other cool thing that, that he does on that is um, – If you click the uh, subtitles button on YouTube, you can actually see each movie as he's pulling the clips from it. So if you find something, and this is the case for me, where I don't watch very many movies, but when I do, I want to watch something that's like a classic or good. And you're going through there, and you're like, wait a minute, I recognize that scene. I've seen that somewhere. Maybe I saw the cut version of that on TNT when I was, you know, (laughs) 18 or something like that. And so you catch that, and you're like, oh, okay. And then you go back, and you, you add it to your Netflix queue or whatever, and you go check out these older films. And then after you've heard him kind of talk about it now you're paying even more attention to every single shot sometimes i'm really focused on the shots and sometimes i'm really lazy and i'm just kind of like enjoying action and violence so it's interesting to kind of look at it from more of a uh, film author mm-hmm. authority maybe perspective as opposed to just the guy who's like ah, hey let's see some cars blow up man <laughs>
1: Yeah, and that's, and that's what I've absolutely loved about it is that um, he clearly knows important is in story and it's a visual medium. And I love that he keeps reminding me of that, that this is visual. You do have to think about visually what you're doing, what story you're telling. Um, and it's really the best film school you can get among everything else to really understand the nature and people like Spielberg and what sets them apart and what their style is. And you know what does Scorsese do in this situation? And it, it also helps you to understand too, um, how directors have style, even in the most subtle ways, um, instead of just like, oh, it's a really long shot, like a Scorsese. It's like, no, Scorsese does specific things with his long shot that makes it Scorsese. So understanding all that, I think, just really helps you on the road to become a better uh, you know, artist.
0: I've got two picks on my end and uh I'm I'm kind of cheating here cuz I was going to just do one but <laughs> now I'm staring at it and I kind of want to talk about it a little bit. I've got right here and I'm I'm holding a monitor but I'll talk about that in a second. I've got right here the Olympus 75mm f eight. This is a fairly pricey lens. Uh, it puts it in somewhere in the range of uh, about $700 to $800 and it is really sexy. Um I know I don't talk about it much but I love the Canon a 135 millimeter F two on my full frame body. And I was kind of looking for something in that range that gave me that awesome portrait look. And the 75 millimeter F one Olympus lens is phenomenal for that. Um, it's long enough. Uh, that's about 150 millimeter equivalent. When you're on the GH four, it's long enough that it uh, really gets close to your subject at a distance. And the F1.8 really knocks out the background. So if you're looking for awesome portraits with shallow depth of field, this guy is one of the best for the price range. The next round up from this is you're getting into probably the Voigtlander series lenses that are in the twelve dollars to $1,400 range. So if you're wanting something with autofocus and something that is really well built, and a pretty decent piece of glass, a really nice piece of glass, actually. Uh, the Olympus 75mm f 18 is my pick for lenses. On <laughs> a not lens-related note, I've talked about this in the past as well. This is the uh, Valtrox uh, DC50 monitor. And if you're familiar with the Sony v 55 I believe, or VL CLV55, that's what it is, um, that monitor... Is the basic design that they used for the Valtrax. The Sony monitor is in the range of around $350 to $400. While this Valtrax can be had for somewhere around $120 to $150 on uh, eBay or Amazon or whatever, it's got mm-hmm. a really great flip up protection screen. It's really lightweight, so you don't have to worry about throwing it in your bag by itself. It runs on the same Sony batteries, so you don't have to worry about getting new types of batteries. The interface and stuff is not as good as the Sony. Um, The Valtrox has a little switch to turn on as opposed to a hold and turn on. It has a barrel plug. They have issued firmware updates for it. I've never actually done that, so I don't know if that's very useful to anybody, but uh, it also... the the adjustment for the menus is a little hokey as opposed to having a rotating endless wheel. It has a little like a nipple type thing that you have to like click back and forth. Uh, So that sucks. Mm -hmm. But otherwise for 140 bucks, if you're looking for a really lightweight, tiny monitor, hdmi monitor it's uh, standard definition so don't get too excited about the resolution but it's good enough for framing and whatever and it's really tiny and light and handy i use this with the uh, gopro all the time when i'm doing uh, product stuff or whatever and they're cheap enough that you can have three or four of them break them do whatever and you're not spending six hundred dollars on say a or 6
1: if you're on amazon it's 125 is it 125 so, right now than- Yep, right nice. now on Amazon, they're twenty twenty five. Uh, as well as too, I think the major the major thing to mention there is the fact that it is light. Uh, I mean, it uses Canon batteries too. If that's the way you roll, and you've got Canon batteries, do they then that's sell an great. iteration
0: with a Canon battery now?
1: Yep. Oh man, I am I way so. behind the times. Now you're. It, now you might be Nikon. Let me see. No, maybe maybe I'm off. Maybe I'm off on that because it looked like it had an adapter, maybe not. But anyways, the fact that it's so light, uh, I know you're not a rig kind of guy, but if you do throw a monitor on a rig, uh, as somebody who has like a, one of the bigger lily puts that does 720p and has focus speaking and everything else, the lily puts are basically built out of steel it doesn't even feel like aluminum those things are so heavy um, and they wear down on your rig and they wear down on your shoulders and they're hard to keep propped up because they're so heavy so even for someone like me i look into something like one of these cheap monitors uh because even if you don't have a rig you could flip it on top of the camera and not feel like you're going to rip the camera apart uh, you know, with a battery and then some kind of uh, big metal monitor.
0: Now, on a side note, you got me looking here at uh, Valtrex offerings, and I haven't actually looked into their stuff in a while. I've I bought probably two or three of these, and I've just kind of been using them forever. Um, they <laughs> do have a DC70 now, which is a seven-inch monitor, and they do have uh, better resolution on that. That looks like it's uh 1280 by 800 as opposed to, I think this is uh, uh, 720 by 480. So... That's a 7-inch version, and it looks as though the interface and everything is pretty much the same. You still have the flip-out screen protector and the same design. So if you're looking for a bigger one, that might be another option. It looks like the price is still only 125
1: $130. That is... Yeah, 132 with free shipping.
0: Yeah, dang. That is really <laughs> attractive. Um, now he's going to go buy one right now. Yeah, this one, the Look one that, that you're... Man, I am actually looking at it. <laughs> no, no, DJ, do not buy. <laughs> do not buy. I'm going to share this picture, though, and take a look at this. Um, this actually is probably more in line with what you're talking about, where it does use multiple types of batteries. If you look at the back of yes. the panel right here, it has a slide-in interface, and this is the DC70 so that one does look like you can change it out for multiple battery types. And it does look <laughs> like it's using basically the same uh, cover plate and what have you. So that's really nice. That's what I really actually like about the Valtrax the most is for my DP4, DP6, I actually throw them into a case before I put them in my bag so the screen doesn't get scratched and yes, I know mm-hmm. they do have that glue on protector that you can put on the front of it, but that's gross. It gets scratched up. I don't like it, so I don't use it. Mm-hmm. With this guy, even though it's not as, as nice of a screen as you get out of those other ones, it has the full case to it. It's cheap enough that you're not as concerned about breaking it. It's light and you can just toss it in your bag and the screen doesn't get scratched up. I wish more manufacturers would include something like this as a method for protecting the screen and a sun hood as opposed to what you get with the DP-6 or the DP-4 or some of these other ones where it's that like cloth material, like clip-on screen that just sucks.
1: It does. It, it sucks to kind of have to pull that out, like rip the Velcro out and then put it back in. And then and then um, when you go to pack it up again, you got to rip the Velcro out, especially if you're running and gunning and you're only carrying three pieces of equipment. Something like that can really get obnoxious. And it's a shame that they don't even have it as an add on for a lot of these higher end uh, monitors.
0: Yeah, I will give uh, props to must HD who also has a fairly high resolution five inch monitor. I believe it's uh 1280 by 800 again. And that one also comes with that sort of thing. The difference between the Valtrox and the must HD though, and something to think about is that the Valtrox is connected right to the edge of the screen. So it's almost right up against the screen when you open up this sun hood. And now I'm having trouble opening it for whatever reason. Uh, so mm-hmm. it doesn't take up very much space with the must HD the uh, screen protector slash sun hood is almost a half inch deep. So it adds a half inch of real estate to the front of the monitor as opposed to recessing Mm -hmm. onto the monitor. So that's just some other thing to think about. I like the must HD monitor, but it's one of those things that I don't use as much because it's just a little bit bulkier and a little bit chunkier than this guy. So when you're looking at traveling light, you kind of reach for whatever the smallest item is.
1: Yes, but for some people who care about it, the Must HD does have a few fancy features like HDMI locks, uh, as well as putting on different battery plates. You can run two cannons at the same time if that's your business. So, you know, th- you're getting a few different features with it um, to consider as well, Whatever best for you.
0: Now, that ends the show for all of our news items and picks. Devin, where can people find you?
1: People can find me at ImpulseNetworks.tv, where I'm going to hopefully shortly I'll uh, be uploading more reviews and uh, more tutorials uh in after effects and uh editing with techniques and understanding workflow as i work on developing the workflow for this uh new studio and how we're going to upload and do all that kind of stuff uh, i think i'm going to have a nice big article about how do you choose what format to export and what's the fastest way of doing it and how do you calculate out the numbers and optimize it so that uh You can get stuff up as fast as you can and not waste a bunch of time pre-rendering or post-rendering. And for me,
0: guys, as usual, you can swing over to iTunes and download the podcast. It's DSLR Film Noob. Just search for that anywhere podcasts are distributed You can also find me on Twitter under the same name, DSLR Film Noob. And you can see these videos on YouTube. Unfortunately, that's not DSLR Film Noob. That's one lone dork. I don't know why I branded it that way, but uh, there you go. Also, make sure you check out the site. Uh, It's been a little bit sparse this week. I've been traveling, and I will continue to be traveling next week. So if things aren't getting updated for a little bit, I apologize for that. But stay tuned for more podcasts, because at least Devin will be here to join me next Sunday for more of... Of this stuff. On that note, thanks for listening and we'll talk to you next time on another DSLR Film Noob Podcast.